Good morning. I trust that this conference has already been a blessing to you, to each of you. It's gone by very quickly. It's been my pattern in these uh, prayer conferences to select a person from church history and to look at their lives and to think about uh, what is it that they can teach us regarding the life of prayer. So we're not primarily looking at the Word of God. We're really looking at the Word of God lived out in a person's life. And we have biblical warrant to do this. Philippians 3.17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me. Paul is saying, imitate me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So yes, we are to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, but we are also to keep our eyes on people around us who are walking according to the Word of God. As examples to us, we see this also in Hebrews, where it says, remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct imitate their faith. And I believe one of the ways we can imitate a person's faith is by paying attention to their prayer life, because your prayer life is really an expression of your faith in God. So before we begin, there are handouts. Just note there are handouts. If if you don't have a handout, there are, I think, some on the back there. Um, they can be helpful. They're not necessary. There's a few blanks in the handout, and um, there should be some underlying words for the blanks that correspond. Hopefully they correspond, and you can fill those out. All right, well, let's begin our time with prayer. Father, we thank you for this time, this weekend, we can gather and think about prayer. And again, we asked, Father, that you would teach us to pray, that you would motivate us to pray. You would ignite our hearts, grip our hearts with the necessity of prayer. That you would open our eyes to the need around us. and That it would drive us to prayer. Lord, encourage our hearts through this life, the life of J.O. Fraser. We pray that you would teach us in this next hour. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be considering the lives of the life of James Utram Fraser, known as J.O. Fraser. And we're going to think about his life in really four we're going to first think about his life briefly, and then we're going to look at some lessons on prayer that we can learn uh, from him. But I'm broke his life down into four periods of time. Uh, his early life and conversion, then years of plowing, years of reaping and years of change. James Utram Fraser was born in London in 1886 to a prominent English family. And although he grew up in a religious home, it wasn't until his university days that the Lord gripped his heart. It was while studying engineering, a fellow student slipped Fraser a little book written by a missionary to China on the Great Commission challenging Christians to take the Great Commission seriously, actually. And it was through reading this little book that Fraser surrendered his life unreservedly to Jesus Christ. Fraser always looked back upon this moment as his conversion experience. Although he was an accomplished pianist and held a degree in engineering, Fraser decided to put all that behind him and to apply to the China Inland Mission to be a missionary. 
although he was rejected twice, he was finally accepted uh, for training. And this led to the years of plowing in his life. He arrived in China in 1908, and he was assigned to China's southwest province, Yunnan province. He immediately began setting to the task of learning Chinese, a, a difficult language to learn. One market day, Fraser noticed some people in the crowds uh, who dressed differently than the rest. These were the Lisu, tribes people, who lived up in the mountains near the Burmese border. He writes, I was very much led out in prayer for these people right from the beginning. Something seemed to draw me to them. It was not until 1913, though, that the mission gave him permission to give his time fully to the Lisu people. The work initially was difficult. It was discouraging. The Lisu villages were small. Okay. Excuse me. So I get my PowerPoint figured out. Okay. There's a, a picture missing here, but that's all right. The Lisu villages were small and often separated by long treks over the mountains. These were deep gorges with rivers going through them and high mountains. And, and although the people were welcoming, they were not interested in the gospel that Fraser proclaimed. Often alone, Fraser battled depression, despair, and even at times contemplated suicide. Through all of this, God taught Fraser to pray, to resist the devil, and to claim the victory that Christ had won for him at the cross. As he trekked from village to village presenting the gospel, he began to pray that several hundred families would come to, and turn to God. He writes, give me Lisu converts, and I can truly say that I will be happy even in a pigsty. Up until now, there seemed to be very little fruit from all of his labors, all uh, so little fruit that Fraser was contemplating asking his superintendent to be transferred to a different location. But before doing so, Fraser decided to take one more trip through the Lisu villages just to see if God perhaps would move. And this really led to this period, these years of reaping. During this trip that lasted a few months, God began moving in a mighty way. In village after village, whole families wanted to walk the Jesus way, burning their fetishes and their demon shelves. Within a few months, 120 families, representing about 600 people, had turned from idols to serve the true and living God. For the next six years, Fraser poured himself into these new believers, and with the help of others, he began discipling them and forming them into churches. He writes, these people are perhaps shivering through their rags. They're poor, dirty, ignorant, superstitious, but they are God's gift to us. You ask God for spiritual children. He chooses them out for you. You shake hands with the brothers and sisters and mothers he has found for you. And you sit down with the boys and girls all around you. For I would rather teach Lizu children to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, than teach integral calculus to the most intelligent student who has no interest in China. And Fraser could have taught integral calculus. He had that capacity. From the very beginning... Fraser insisted on the work being indigenous. Fraser's policy was that the Lisu churches should be self-supporting and not dependent on outside funds. 
He quickly entrusted new churches into the hands of Lisu elders. Fraser developed what is known as the Lisu, uh, he developed a script for the Lisu language, which is officially known today as the Fraser script. He used this script to translate parts of the New Testament and other materials, such as catechisms and hymns, into the Lisu language. Fraser also established during this time what was known as the rainy season Bible schools uh, to further train Lisu in God's word, especially during those seasons when they could not farm. And during these years, other missionaries came and joined him in the work, partnered with him. Uh, this great work that God was doing among the Lisu. But in 1922, after 14 years of work in China, Fraser went back to England on his first furlough. Fourteen years, first furlough. After two years in England, Fraser returned to China. And he was anxious, of course, to see how the Lisu Christians were getting along. But the mission asked Fraser to oversee the mission work in northwest China. And so for three years, he labored far from the Lisu people he had grown to love. He had many experiences there, uh, incredible experiences in the, the Gansu province. But after five years of being away, Joe Fraser was finally able to revisit the Lisu people. But this time, it was as the superintendent of the entire Yunnan province there in the southwest And so because of this new role, it meant that his time was increasingly taken up with correspondence, visiting the different missionary stations and facilitating the work. In 1929, Fraser met and married Roxy Diamond. He was 42 years old. She was only 23. Life was very simple. They had no home. Three days after their wedding, they set off on a five-month tour of the tribes in the province. And in a memoir, she writes of this first trip, James was tremendously strong and frequently spent most of the day running alongside my mule, leaping over boulders, climbing up rocky places, talking and reminiscing to me about the by the hour. Living in the wild as he has done, he had grown very indifferent to dress, which, to his great amusement, he had to change a little after marriage. <laughs> Yet even when staying in places a little better than pigsties, He was always the gentleman, and wherever it was possible to muster some people, he would take out his hurricane lamp and preach to them, and on his return, he would always spend much time in prayer. Well, Fraser's dream had come true. You see, while they had been courting, Fraser had told Roxy, you know what my dream has always been? Well, it has been to have my wife on one mule, myself on another, and all my worldly possessions on a third Together they had three daughters, the last of whom Fraser never met. In 1938, his wife pregnant with their third child, Fraser suddenly came down with a serious illness, and within two days he had gone to be with Lord. He was 52 years old. If you would like to learn more of this, about this remarkable man, this man that God used in, in tremendous ways, I would encourage you to Read one of these two biographies. Mountain Rain is a biography of Fraser written by his daughter. And we have a few copies in the back. They are used copies, gently used copies, but um, if you're interested in this biography, you may purchase one back there. 
Um, also, Mrs. Howard Taylor's Behind the Ranges, of course, is a classic on the life of J.O. Fraser. And so, with that kind of background, I know it was a very quick survey of his life, but we want to focus in on what can he teach us, what can Fraser teach us concerning prayer. And we really have two primary sources of from Geo Fraser's life. We have his journal entries, but we also have letters that he wrote to his prayer supporters. And so from those two basic sources, we can uh, enter in and understand something of the life he lived, the work, uh, and the, 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 the opposition he faced, as well as something of his inner life. Fraser was very good about sharing about his inner struggles, um, and he shared a lot about prayer. So, we begin. First lesson on prayer. How are we doing so far? Okay, and this is really where your notes begin. Um, prayer. Number one, prayer is an indispensable part of an effective ministry. Prayer is an indispensable part of an effective ministry. We've been hearing this, that prayer is not incidental. It is fundamental. And this is what Fraser believed with all of his heart. From the very beginning of his ministry, he understood the importance of prayer. And he disciplined himself to prayer. He found prayer haunts, he called them, in the hills surrounding the town where he was staying, different spots for different kinds of weather. And there he would go and pour out his heart to the Lord, he developed the habit of walking up and down, praying out loud, talking as a man talks to his friend. He writes, can it be that a great work for God involving thousands of souls devolves upon our prayer life, even half a world away? He writes, why prayer is so indispensable, we cannot say, but we'd better recognize the fact, even if we cannot explain it, it makes me think of what Colin Brazier brought up, that sometimes we can't put together the mystery of prayer, God's part, our part, and yet we better get to praying, because that we know we must do. He writes, I am feeling more and more that it is after all just the prayers of God's people that call down blessing upon the work, whether they are directly engaged in it or not. Paul may plant, Apollos water, but it is God who gives the increase, and this increase can be brought down from heaven by believing prayer, whether offered in China or in England. Note, note this next phrase here, solid, lasting missionary work is done on our knees. Solid, lasting missionary work is done on our knees. What I covet more than anything else is earnest, believing prayer. And I write to ask you to continue in prayer for me and the work here. Years later, Fraser's view of prayer had only deep, deepened. He writes, I used to th- think that prayer should have the first place and teaching the second. I now feel it would be truer to give prayer the first, second, and third place and teaching the fourth. And so prayer is an indispensable part of an effective ministry of a fruitful life. Lesson number two, the greater the spiritual opposition, the greater need there is for prayer. The greater the spiritual opposition, 
the greater need there is for prayer. Fraser enjoyed a close relationship with his mother and he wrote to her often, asking her to pray alongside him for the needs, his own needs, as well as the needs of the lost around him. But as he began to focus more of his attention on the Lisu people, he began to experience the devil's opposition like he had never seen it before. And he began sensing the need for greater support in prayer. And so he wrote to his mother, he wrote, I know you'll never fail me in the matter of intercession, but will you think and pray about getting a group of like-minded friends, whether a few or many, whether in one place or scattered, to join in the same petitions? If you could form a small prayer circle, I would write regularly to the members. He was aware of his need for more prayer because he was aware of the greater opposition that he was facing. After a particularly long and difficult survey trip up in Lisu territory, he arrived back at his base and he wrote, what a number of earnest, spiritually-minded Christians there are at home and how correspondingly rich are the prayer forces of the church. How I long for some of this wealth for myself and the Lisu here. I've had it in measure already, but I should very, very much like a wider circle of intercessors. Our work among the Lisu is not going to be a bed of roses spiritually. I know enough about Satan to realize that he will have all his weapons ready for determined opposition. He would be a missionary simpleton who expected plain sailing in any work of God. I will not, by God's grace, let anything deter me from going straight ahead in the path of which he leads but I shall feel greatly strengthened if I know of a definite company of prayers holding me up. I am confident that the Lord is going to do a work sooner or later among the Lisu here. You see, Fraser was very much aware that he was in a spiritual conflict and that he was advancing into enemy territory. But he was also aware that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And in the spiritual fight, our offensive weapons are really twofold, according to Ephesians 6, as we were looking at just yesterday. First, it is the wielding of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And second, it is praying at all times, in the spirit and it is this particularly in this second area in this area of prayer that Fraser sensed his need for reinforcement and so he writes again you see this much on his heart knowing as I do the conditions of the work its magnitude potentially its difficulties and the opposition it meets with I have definitely resolved with God's help to enlarge the place of my tent to lengthen my prayer cords and strengthen my intercessory stakes. He's thinking of prayer almost like a tent. And I'm, I'm gonna, the wind is coming. You know, I, I love climbing stories and, and you see where they pitch their tents, like on Mount Everest or on some of these huge mountains. You know, they're like, <laughs> like sliding off the mountain and the wind coming and, and they, they've got to have some good stakes is I want to strengthen my intercessory stakes to make a forward movement with regard to the prayer circle. I am persuaded that the homeland is rich and godly, quiet, praying people in every denomination. They may not be a great multitude as far as numbers are concerned, but they are rich in faith 
even if many of them be poor and of humble station. It is the prayers of such that I covet more than gold of Ophir. Those good men and women who know what it is to have power with God and to prevail, will you help me prayerfully and judiciously to get some of these to join the circle? See, there was already this circle that had developed around his mother, but he wants it expanded. I need more prayer because I sense the forces of darkness are great. The work for which I am asking prayer is preaching and teaching the word of God. There's the first sword of the spirit, pure and simple. I have no confidence in anything but the gospel of Calvary to uplift these needy people. At a later time, he wrote, I really believe that every particle of prayer put up by the home churches, that if every particle of prayer put up by the home churches on behalf of the infant churches of the mission field were removed, the latter would be swamped by an incoming flood of the powers of darkness. Just as a plant may die for lack of watering, so may a genuine work of God die and rot for lack of prayer. As we go over this second point, the second point, the greater the spiritual opposition, the greater need there is for prayer. I, I, I can't help but think of ourselves and the work here in this ministry that as I read what Fraser's reading, uh, uh, writing here, I too feel the same way. I think the staff would feel the same way that we would covet your prayers for this work. Because as the day gets darker and we sense it here, even in the work and the ministry here that we do, that we would, we would love it if you would partner with us in prayer. This is one of the great needs that Fraser sensed as he uh, moved into, as he made progress in the ministry that God had given to him. So, number two, the greater the spiritual opposition, the greater need there is for prayer. But number three, number three is a big one. It's probably one of the biggest lessons that Fraser learned there on the mission field. And is this a victory over Satan, both in one's inner life and in ministry, come through our definitely and persistently claiming the victory which Jesus Christ has won for us on the cross. Victory over Satan both in one's inner life and in ministry come through our definitely and persistently claiming the victory which Jesus Christ has won for us on the cross. We don't hear much about this in churches today, but I believe it is a crucial element of life, particularly when you're in a very difficult, dark place. Uh, I wasn't going to put this in here, but Fraser was sharing with someone at one point about how reading regarding spiritual conflict really encouraged him at a particular time in his ministry. And, and he was talking to this other person back in England. Uh, it was one, during one of his furloughs. And, and they said, oh, I've never found that very encouraging. I always found that, you know, too negative or too, too, too difficult to understand this, this whole reading on spiritual conflict. And he says, you know what? It's because you've never sensed a need. It's because you haven't been where I've been. That's why. So the victory over Satan 
comes from claiming the victory won at the cross. Fraser experienced many setbacks and discouragements in his ministry, especially early on in his ministry among the Lisu. He became completely discouraged. He was seeing little fruit, and he was even asking himself the question, maybe it was all one big mistake. Maybe he should have stayed back in England. Maybe he should have been an engineer. Maybe this whole idea of coming out here to China was one big mistake. And as he wrestled with his doubts, he began to despair. And he even contemplated suicide. You read about that in his book, in his daughter's book, Mountain Rain. These were steep gorges that he would be in. And he would, he would, he, he talks about at one point being up high on the side of one of these gorges. And he talks about the, the temptation, the pressure just to launch himself into that gorge and end it all. Just be over with this life. You see, the devil was pounding him and getting the upper hand. And in the midst of this darkness, miraculously, a letter got through to him with an enclosed copy of a magazine called The Overcomer. And Fraser writes, I read it over and over. What it showed me was that deliverance from the power of the evil one comes through definite resistance on the ground of the cross. I felt like a man perishing of thirst to whom some beautiful, clear, cold water had begun to flow. The Lord himself resisted the devil vocally. Get thee behind me, Satan. I, in humble dependence on him, did the same. I talked to Satan at that time using the promises of Scripture as weapons, and they worked. Right then, the terrible oppression began to pass away. On another occasion, Fraser was attacked with evil thoughts coming persistently to his mind to the point where that's all he was obsessed with were these evil thoughts. I don't know if you've experienced something like that, but he writes, these thoughts were present with me even when I was preaching. Note what he does. I went out of the city to a hidden goalie. All right, devil, you're bringing the fight to me. I'm going to bring it to you. He goes on the offense. And there voiced my determined resistance to Satan in this matter. I claimed deliverance on the ground of my Redeemer's victory on the cross. I even shouted my resistance to Satan and all his thoughts. The obsession collapsed then and there like a house of cards to return no more. In times of conflict, I still find deliverance through repeating Scripture out loud appropriate scripture brought to my mind through the Holy Spirit. It is like crashing through opposition. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Ministering to the Lisu was not easy. I want you to imagine this particular time in, in Fraser's ministry. He was living up in the mountains in a small hut. It was winter, so it was bitter cold. His bedding is infested with lice and bedbugs. The dirt has turned to mud because the Lisu have this annoying habit of always spitting on the floor. His only food is rice, breakfast, lunch, dinner, rice, rice, rice. Because of this bland diet, his health is failing. And on top of all of this misery, one of Fraser's helpers around this time was bad-tempered, rude, wasting his time and his money. And Fraser found himself struggling again. struggling with impatience, struggling with depression. I want to pull up here a few of his journal entry notes. Note this, February 3rd, depressed. After defeat this morning, from which no real recovery all day. 
All day, depressed. All day, down. February 4th, no meal till 2 p.m. Thoroughly depressed about the state of the work in Tansa. The evil one seems to have the upper hand in me today, as well as in the Christians. He talks about right, right around this time, trying to have this Bible study, and they're just laughing. You know, the, the guys he's trying to work with, they're just, they, they can't stop laughing. And he's just depressed. Like, what is this? But know what happens on February 5th. I'm not taking the black despondent view I took yesterday. The opposition will not be overcome by reasoning or by pleading, but chiefly by steady, persistent prayer. The men need not be dealt with. It's a heartbreaking job trying to deal with Elisu possessed by a spirit of fear. But the powers of darkness need to be fought. I am now setting my face like a flint. If the work seems to fail, then pray. If services, etc. fall flat, then pray still more. If months slip by with little or no results, then pray still more and get others to help you. Pray, pray, pray. So victory over Satan's Satan both in one's inner life and in ministry come through our definitely and persistently claiming and standing upon the victory which Jesus Christ has won for us at the cross. And that has to be done again and again and again and again. How are we doing? First three lessons. Lesson number four. People's spiritual darkness ought to provoke us to prayer with great earnestness. People's spiritual darkness ought to provoke us to prayer with great earnestness. As Fraser began learning how to resist the devil, he also discovered how to take the burden and sorrow he felt because of the, the Lisu's spiritual bondage and to use it to fuel earnest prayer. And there was a particular example of this spiritual bondage when Fraser was invited to what the Lisu called the Sword uh, Sword Ladder Festival. Several hundred Lisu people were gathered together for this demonic festival. He writes about it, the Sword Ladder had about three dozen rungs, 36 rungs made up of swords and was fixed vertically. It stood right out in open space and was some 40 feet high. And the evening before the ascent, the devil dancer was supposed to wash his hands and feet in the fire, red-hot cinders. The next day, this man climbs this ladder. Everybody's in this stupor, this, you can imagine, the spiritual darkness. But after this festival, Fraser recounts that a spirit of fear seemed to overtake the people. And even those who seemed open prior to the festival afterwards turned away and wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And Fraser felt crushed with sorrow. But instead of going towards depression like he had in the past, he channeled those deep desires towards prayer. A passage that God used to teach Fraser came from 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's the story of Hannah crying out for a son because she was barren. And particularly verse 10, ministered to him, she greatly distressed. She, being in great distress, did she get angry? No. She greatly distressed, complained? No. She greatly distressed, prayed. Prayed to the Lord 
and wept bitterly. And Fraser shared these insights with his prayer partner saying, How much of our prayer is of the quality we find in Hannah's bitterness of soul? When she prayed unto the Lord, how many times have we ever wept sore before the Lord, wept much before the Lord? We have prayed much, perhaps, but our longings have not been deep as compared with hers. We have spent much time upon our knees, it may be, without our hearts going out in an agony of desire, but real supplication is the child of heartfelt desire and cannot prevail without it, a desire not of earth, nor issuing from our own sinful hearts, but wrought into us by God himself. Oh, for such desires. He goes on and says, How else ought we to feel when we see all the ungodliness and unbelief around us on every hand? Would a light-hearted apathy become us under such circumstances? No, indeed. And I want you please to join me, or rather share with me in the provocation which is daily with me uh, in my work among the Lisu. Let the terrible power of the evil spirits among them be a provocation to you. Let their sinfulness, their fear, their pitiful weakness and instability be a provocation to you. Ask God to lay the burden upon you, and that heavily, that it may press you down upon your knees." My prayer for you is that God will work such sorrow within you that you will have no alternative but to pray. I want you to be sore provoked as I am. I wonder, you know, as we look at this particular lesson, if this is, is this something that you know something about? Have you experienced this? This being provoked to prayer because of the needs that you see around you. Mr. Nuremberg yesterday was talking about the importance of being alert, alert to the spiritual realm, alert to the spiritual conflict that is being waged around you. And I would encourage you to ask God, open my eyes. Ask God to open your eyes to be aware of the spiritual darkness that is going on around you, the conflict around you, in order to provoke you towards prayer. When your eyes, when you begin to see the needs around you. And you begin to realize that my teaching alone is not going to change anything. My counseling alone isn't going to change anything. My, you know, my ministry alone is not going to change anything. It drives you to prayer. It drives you to prayer. God has to move. He writes, An earnest desire in spiritual things is a bell ringing for prayer. That's a wonderful thing. An earnest desire in spiritual things is a bell ringing for prayer. Not that we should wait for such desires. We should pray at all seasons, whether we are prayer hungry or not. If we have a healthy prayer appetite, so much the better. It's hard to pray, as Mr. Stair brought out. But it's easier to pray when you sense your need for God, when you sense the need all around you and you pray. So ask for that prayer appetite. Number five, lesson number five. Trust God to at times lead you beyond general praying into definite requests made in definite faith 
for definite answers. Trust God to, at times, lead you beyond general praying into definite requests made in definite faith for definite answers. Fraser distinguished between general and specific praying. He writes, there's a distinction between general praying and definite prayer. By definite prayer, I mean prayer after the pattern of Matthew 21, 21 and John 15, 7, where a definite petition is offered up and definite prayer exercised for its fulfillment. In general prayer, I am limited by my ignorance. That's the real issue there. When I don't know what to pray for, I have to by necessity, pray more generally. I'm limited by my ignorance. But this kind of prayer is the duty of us all, however vague it has to be. I may know very little in detail about the object of my prayer, but I can at any rate commend it to God and leave it with Him. It is good and right to pray vaguely for all people, all lands, all things, at all times. But definite prayer is a very different matter. It is, in a special sense, the prayer of faith. A definite request is made in definite faith for a definite answer. Now, this definite kind of praying cannot be forced. God has to lead you into it. He must reveal His will to us regarding a particular situation if we're going to pray in this definite sort of way. It's interesting, early on in his ministry among the Lisu, Fraser wrote this, I'm impressed too that I do not yet know the channels which the grace of God is going to cut among, cut out among the people here. Hence, general prayer has its place until God's plan is revealed a little more fully. What is he saying? Towards the beginning of his ministry, he's saying, I'm not exactly sure what God is up to here. I'm not really sure what God wants to do among these people. I'm uncertain about his will. And therefore, I'm praying in a more general sense. But what's interesting is later on, Fraser began praying more definitely for several hundred families to come to Christ. It's interesting, in one letter he says, you might ask me why I don't pray for several thousand families or several million families. You know? And he says, it's simple. I don't have the faith for it. But I have, God has given me faith for several hundred families, and that's what I'm praying for. But then note what he also says. He says, I don't ask you to join me in this definite prayer. I would not ask you to join me in this definite prayer for the turning to God of several hundred Lisu families unless God gives an individual guidance to do to you as well, to do so. Better offer prayer in a more general way than make a petition apart from his leading. The importance of God's leading in prayer. And so the question could be asked, how can we be led by God in our praying? Mr. Sear was talking about that yesterday, about the, the importance of being led in prayer. And Fraser gives some practical advice here. He says, I felt, even when praying alone, that there are two concerned in the prayer, God and myself. I do not think that a petition which misses the mind of God will ever be answered. Do you believe that? A petition that misses the mind of God, that misses the will of God, will it be answered? No, it's not going to be answered. Personally, I feel the need of trusting him to lead me in prayer as well as in other matters. 
I find it well to preface prayer, not only by meditation, but by the definite request that I may be directed into the channels of prayer to which the Holy Spirit is beckoning me. So I sense the need that before I, I go to prayer for others, I pray that God would lead me in my praying. And so that I'm praying according to His will. I also find it helpful to make a short list like notes prepared for a sermon before every season of prayer. The mind needs to be guided as well as the spirit attuned. I love that. Very balanced. Mind guided. The spirit attuned. I can thus get my thoughts in order. And having prepared my prayer can put the notes on the table or chair before me, kneel down and get to business. The business of praying. Now, Fraser called this definite kind of praying the prayer of faith. And he actually wrote an entire fairly lengthy um, prayer letter to his supporters explaining what some of the spiritual principles that are behind this prayer of faith. I didn't have the time to go into it in our session today, but if I would really encourage you to read it. I think in your notes I have placed the URL, the web address, where you can read that prayer of faith. Now, it's the only place online where I found it, so I put that URL in there. I know nothing about that website that I pointed you to, so I am not recommending anything else on that website. But that particular URL is J.O. Fraser's Prayer of Faith, and I recommend that uh, to you. I encourage you to read it. Of course, if you purchase his Mountain Rain book or Behind the Ranges, that entire letter is in both of those biographies. So, number four, or number five, uh, lesson here. Trust God at all times, uh, at times to lead you beyond general praying into definite requests. Trust God to lead you in, in prayer, made in definite faith for definite answers. And that leads us to our final lesson that we are going to be looking at this morning from the life of Fraser, and it is this lesson, a practical one, prayer must properly balance with action and hard work. Prayer must be properly balanced with action and hard work. Fraser was a man who gave himself to prayer, no doubt about it. But after he had prayed, he didn't sit back passively waiting for God to answer. He went out. He preached. He studied the language. He developed relationships. He writes, I do not intend to be one of those who bemoan little results while, quote, resting in the faithfulness of God. One of my favorite quotes here. I'm not going to be one who just sits back passively trusting in the faithfulness of God. I believe in the faithfulness of God, but look, my cue is to take hold of the faithfulness of God and use the means necessary to secure big results. Prayer and work go hand in hand. He writes, God gives us the ground in answer to prayer of faith, but not the harvest. What's he saying? He's saying, when we pray, God gives us the dirt, but he doesn't give us the wheat. That, he says, must be worked for in cooperation with him. Faith must be followed up by works. They're all prayer works. I mean, they're all the results of prayer. Faith must be followed up by works, prayer works. Salvation is of grace, but it must be worked out if it is to become ours. And the prayer of faith is just the same. It is given to us by free grace, but it will never be ours till we follow it up, work it out. Faith and works, again, 
They must never be divorced, for indolence will reap no harvest in the spiritual world. But Fraser actually struggled with indolence. He struggled with laziness at times. He writes, um, at one point in his ministry, he's plagued with the spiritual lethargy, and he writes, yes, passivity, or call it an uglier word, laziness, <laughs> is the cause of half my defeat. He's recognizing his own life, this laziness. When you're weak and feel unable to free yourself from the power of sin, just up and sing a song or shout a determined note of defiance against the enemy. Roll up your sleeves then and do some good Lisu study. You know, get to work. Moral. Try to find God's balance between prayer and work. Prayer and work. He writes, sometimes the general state of defeat and weakness is cured as if by magic, by setting and doing some good, honest work. And then this final quote, the cross is going to hurt. The cross is going to hurt. Let it hurt. I'm going to work hard and pray hard too by God's grace. That was the life of J.O. Fraser. He worked hard. He prayed hard by the grace of God. So I believe this is a fitting place to conclude our our study on J.O. Fraser. It is undeniable that God used Fraser in a mighty way to bring hundreds of Lisu families to himself. There are still Lisu churches in that area today. That work has endured. But it is good to remind ourselves that before God could do a work through Fraser, God had to do a work in Fraser. Reflecting on the early years of his ministry, he's older and he's looking back and he's reflecting. He writes this, I had so much to learn. I had so much to learn. It seemed as if God was saying, you're crying to me to do a big work among the Lisu. I am wanting to do a big work in you yourself. I'm wanting to do a big work in you. And so I would ask you this morning, what work is God doing in your life, in your heart? Because you may be wanting to do a big work out there, but God is wanting to do a big work in you. What lessons is God wanting to teach you? Perhaps God is wanting just to open your eyes to the importance of prayer. That that prayer is fundamental, not incidental. Perhaps He is calling you this morning to back to or to a regular and consistent Ministry of prayer for a particular work, a particular ministry, a particular missionary, particular individuals in your local church, a persistent, I'm going to pray for them every single day. I'm going to keep the spiritual pressure up on this particular situation or this ministry and see God work. Perhaps he's showing you that you can be a partner in the work of God, even if you're separated from it by hundreds, thousands of miles. Perhaps God is wanting to teach you about the victory that Christ has won through the cross over all the forces of darkness. A victory that has to be laid hold of again and again and again. A victory in which we can stand in by faith as we stand upon the victory that Christ has won for us at the cross. Perhaps he's wanting to open your eyes to that reality. Perhaps God is wanting to open our eyes to the spiritual needs of those around us. Maybe we need to be, begin to begin praying, Lord, show me, open my eyes 
to the spiritual conflict. And if you remember that amazing story, uh, I believe it was Elijah and um, his servant, and they're surrounded by this army, and, and it's hopeless. You know, they're in this city, and they're surrounded by this huge army, and the servant's just going, oh my goodness, our life is done for. And Elijah says, prays his prayer, God open his eyes, and he opens his eyes, and he sees the hosts, you know, the, the spiritual world, the, the, the spiritual, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bigger army out there. Perhaps we need our eyes open to some of that spiritual conflict. Perhaps God wants to teach us about being led by God in our praying. Perhaps he wants us to lead us into definite requests, in definite faith. Perhaps he wants to grow us in that particular area. Or perhaps, as we saw here at the end, God is simply wanting to teach us about the relationship between praying and working and how faith and action are not contradictory to each other. They're not not antithetical to each other. I believe that as we too give ourselves to prayer, I believe that we're going to realize that God is wanting to do a work within us in order that he might do a work through us. That is what God is after. Are you willing for that? That's the question. Are you willing for God to do that work in you? Are you open to the lessons that he is wanting to teach you over this weekend? Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for those who've gone before us, who've lived a life of faith, trust in you, through whom we can learn lessons on how we too can walk this and live this life of faith, particularly in the area of prayer. Teach us, grow us, do a big work in us. For every one of us here in this room, you would do a big work within us that it might spill over into the lives of those around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.